Podcast One and Forbes present Mentoring Moments with Denise Rastari, a show where women you may never meet will become your mentors. Join Denise in her New York City apartment and tap into her conversations with successful women who are dropping the V-bombs. That's right, they're getting vulnerable. Now, here's your host, Denise Rastari. Hi, and welcome to my New York City kitchen table. And across from me is someone who knows her way around the kitchen just a little, well, probably a whole lot more than I do. It's Amanda Hesser, and she's the co-founder of Food 52. It's a food community, which I love this, that it's a community. It's online, but it's a community. And there are millions of people who come on to submit their recipes, tweak their recipes. And you know, what I love about it is that because it is a community, and I think we're all seeking that feeling of we belong to something versus having a site where it's recipes. I think Food 52 is really that sense of belonging. It's human um, because we're all looking for that. And it's a place which I love, the e-commerce site. It's a place I shop. It's my go-to place for gifts. So it's Food52 has the, the recipes, the online, the community, the place to shop. It's like my one-stop shopping place. So I'm so thrilled that Amanda is here. And here's the thing. Food52 is working. Food52 is just in Cranes in the list of the top 50 growing companies in New York, which is a huge thing to get, to master. And I love Amanda's past that you were, you're, you are still a book author, but you're on the New York Times bestselling list. You learned how to cook. You cooked in Europe and you got your first real job as a features writer and a food editor at the New York Times. And I, I want to start off, Amanda, with the story because this morning I was thinking about this story and I think it somehow relates to you. So I'll tell you this story and you can tell me. So years ago, like 15 years ago, I was with my hairdresser, who was a dear friend of mine, Paul Podlucky. And I was dating this guy who was very successful, and I could talk to him on the phone for hours, but I just didn't like being with him. There was no chemistry whatsoever. <laughs> but all, a lot of my friends were like, you know, but he's such a great catch in quotes, right? He's successful. He's very smart. And so I'm telling this to Paul, and Paul says, you know, honey, you're hanging out with Mr. Wrong. And as long as you hang out with Mr. Wrong, you're never going to find Mr. Right. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, I've heard that. And he said, well, let me make sense out of this for you, why you're not going to find Mr. Right. It's because you're on a different stratosphere than Mr. Right is right now when you're hanging out with Mr. Wrong. So you're at a C level of what you want. And Mr. Right's playing at an A level. So he's not coming down to the C level to find you, and you're not putting yourself in the A level to be available to find Mr. Right. And I met my, this is a true story, I met my husband a week later, and he's definitely so Mr. Right. But I look at it beyond that boy-girl relationship or partner relationship in the work relationship, that whenever we're doing something, whether it is a personal relationship, a business relationship, and we're not playing to our full game, we're not playing to where we can be, and we're putting ourselves, even if our friends are saying, what a great job you have, you know, what a great job it is to be the editor at the New York Times. And when I was at USA Today, people would say, what a great job you have, you're flying all over the country. But I wasn't being me. I wasn't going to my fullest potential. And so that's my mentoring moment for the day, is that we all want to look for Mr. Right in Mr. Right's zone, whatever Mr. Right means to us. And the reason why I thought that kind of 
reminded me of you is your jobs in the past sound very alluring to a lot of people I'm sure would love to be the editor for the New York Times for food. So I just wanted to talk with you about that, about finding that right job you know, for now. I think some things are just for now. Yeah. Um, it's something I think about a lot and I feel I, a small level of regret, but also kind of grateful that I did make a change because, yeah, I think that certainly my generation, you know, if you got sort of what was considered a good job, like you were devoted to kind of making it work. And I certainly was raised that way. And so I think that when I um, got hired at the New York Times and which really truly was a dream job for me and, and for many others would, who are interested in food media and food writing would, would be a dream job. And for many years it was. Um, but I remember um, when I started, the person who had actually recommended me to the job, who had also formerly been um, a food writer at the time, said, this is a really fantastic job. Um, stay for a few years and then go and do something else. And um, I remember thinking that she was crazy because like how – why would I ever want to leave this job? And, you know, and in fact, like many people don't ever leave the New York times. Um, but what I found was over the years, um, while I did enjoy it tremendously and I learned so much and you're surrounded by, you know, the best journalists in the world and a really like an institution that has such a good soul. Um, over time I became unhappy and I think it was because it wasn't the right job for me. I, um, I have a real um, <laughs> strong independent streak, and I've always been entrepreneurial. And when you work for an institution where things are very codified and there's a lot of history and tradition, um, that doesn't work well with someone who's always kind of wanting to change things and improve them. And I found uh, myself kind of frustrated and, and confused by the frustration because what, how could I be frustrated when I have such a amazing role. And so it took, it took me a while. I ended up staying 11 years. And so I, sometimes I look back at the advice, advice I was given, um, by who, someone who I consider a mentor and, um, and I, yeah, I didn't, I didn't listen carefully to it. I, I, I listened to it at the time it stuck with me because I was like, why is she saying this? But I didn't listen maybe to myself quite, um, quickly enough. Um, I think I sort of talked myself into, doing something that I knew was, um, respected and kind of approved of. And I, I think a lot about it these days because I do think millennials, they have a very different kind of approach to, um, jobs in general and, and careers. And they don't feel that sort of, um, devotion and attachment and, um, sort of this need for mastery within, uh, one role. And sure, that's not always an ideal uh, situation, especially for their employers. Um, it's, I find it um, kind of inspiring and, and liberating um, to see that, that feeling of freedom about um, your decisions and what you're, how you're spending your time um, at a young age, I think is, is actually kind of a really powerful thing. I agree. Before I joined USA Today, I was in the hotel business. And so, and you, know, you know, being in the hospitality business, being sought after is a real compliment. So you really didn't want to have a job for more than two years because you wanted some other company coming uh -huh. to you. I was in sales, right? So you wanted someone coming to you saying, yes. we want to nab you to come to our company. When I applied for USA Today, one of their big concerns was, and this was, you know, 30 years ago, was that I only was at a job for no longer than two years. And now I'm, I'm so thankful that I was doing that, that I stayed at USA Today for 16 years and probably eight years too long. I should have you know, gotten out eight years sooner. 
but it was, I was there, the golden handcuffs. There were so many reasons to stay there and it was a great job. So Uh it wasn't, I was miserable, but I was just there too long. Yeah. You were going to ask me about one of my mentoring Yes, I want to know. You're meant, that's next. Yeah, You're oh, mentoring moment. That's well, I realized next. that I sort of um, left ahead and told you one, um, one that I didn't listen to, um, but the other that um, I really did listen to um, was from a college professor um, named Barbara Wheaton, who's a food historian, and I actually took her class yeah, while while I was in college, but it was at a different, I took her class at a different school, and, and actually it was an evening class that was many um, kind of adults. There were a lot of food writers in this class, including um, uh, people like Corby Kummer from The Atlantic. And it was really like how I ended up kind of landing myself in this this class um, was sort of an accident, but it ended up being this really, um, I would say, like defining experience for me. And I met a lot of great people. And my my professor, I remember um, after I was in my senior year of college and I was deciding about, you know, what I wanted to do next. And I, at the time I was studying finance and economics and but I was studying food history at this in her class. And I was thinking about going to Europe to cook and um, because a lot of people had recommended that I do. And I was working in a restaurant and a lot of the cooks on the, on the line had, had spent time in Europe. It was sort of like the thing to do in the 90s. And I mean, it is still to some extent, but I would say it's expanded beyond Europe. Uh, and then it was primarily France and, and Italy anyhow. And so I was considering doing it. Um, and I was telling her kind of all about my thoughts of like, well, I, you know, I was thinking I could do, I could do an internship here and then I could maybe travel there. And, you know, what, what do you think? And she said, um, you know, why, why are you asking me for permission? Like, it sounds to me that you know exactly what you want to do, but you're, you're asking me as if you're asking a question, like, can I do this? And it was so, um, I, um, I was taken aback, frankly, you know, well, just just because I was, I, um, I was so used to, um, adults and, um, people I looked up to giving me advice and sort of telling me what they thought I should do. And she was telling me the opposite. And I was so, um, I realized that, um, I think culturally we are, we are often looking for approval and we, we really, um, crave that. And, I think I certainly had my whole life at that point. And, you know, I was always trying to like get the good grades, which again would get me approval or, you know, do the, do the projects or the um, activities that um, would kind of reinforce that behavior. And I was really showing signs of this entrepreneurial side of me, which was like, I want to do this thing. There is no map. I have to make the map for myself. And I already have, I have mapped this out, but then I was going to someone and saying, is this okay? (laughs) And it was so great. I'm, I mean, I think I still think about this so regularly because when you grow up with a certain um, way of thinking, it becomes so ingrained that it's hard to just let go of it, you know, in one fell swoop. And I didn't at that moment, you know, I, I didn't, I mean, I, I was very moved by what she said and I went to Europe and did what I wanted. Um, and I feel like for the most part, I, I have done that throughout my career. Um, I would say at sometimes with more success than others, but I, I still have to think of it. You know, now I, here I am in mid career and, you know, I had to remind myself, I don't need permission to do, to do this thing that I want to do. Um, like, you know, we're all creating our own stories and our own paths and, um, you know, certainly within you know, some, um, professions, there is a, a path that you sort of have to take. Like if you want to become a doctor, you right. do yeah. have to go to medical school. Um, but I would say less and less so, 
you know, you really can kind of define um, the narrative of, of your career. Um, you know, it can, it can take lots of different directions. And I, I love that. Like I've always loved um, reading obituaries of people who've done many different things. Um, I kind of seek them out. You oh, know? Really? Yeah, yeah. There's and a book of, maybe there, I want to do a book on obituaries, but there was something else on obituaries about women's, I want to do a book on, or not even a book, but I want to do a post on what do you want in your obituary, not the, I was a beloved mother and all, but what else do you want your obituary to say? Well, um, I, I certainly think about that too. And sometimes I find that kind of like a motivating exercise. It's like, am I going to be feel good about what my obituary might say? And like, does it, was I daring? Did I push myself? Did I make an interesting life for myself and my family? You know, I think as you age, you get, <laughs> you think about these things more often. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Um, Putting yourself like on a scale of zero to 10 in the obituary, doing a good job. Where are you in, where are you in that zero to 10 right now if you're looking at creating your story? It, like sort of a six to seven. I agree. I think you're living your life and we don't know each other at all, but just reading about you and seeing you. And I think there, something that's always so telling to me, Amanda, is when you look in someone's eyes and you see their spirit, you can see if someone's happy, their whole being, how comfortable are you with yourself? And you're so comfortable with yourself, which is great. It's, it's great. So I, but I do have a question. So when your professor told you, you know, asked you, why are you asking for permission? Were there other people that were going through your head and thinking, well, she's okay with it, but like, what about mom or what about dad or what about so-and-so? Were you able to let go of that? Were you able to put them like in compartments or were they still like playing with your head? Well, um, you know, I knew my mom was not that excited and my father had died recently and I knew that, um, yeah, it was, it was definitely like controversial, like with my, my family. Um, but (laughs) I would say in some ways that motivated me more. Like often my mom, my mom has this like interesting mix of like being very, um, ambitious for her, her children, but also like a little negative and, and more timid about like what, like I remember when I started, uh, Food 52, she was very disapproving. I mean, the fact that I left the New York Times was like horrifying to her. And I can understand that as a parent. Um, you know, here I am, at the, I have this great job. I have a good salary and I have benefits and all of the things that really mattered to my parents who, you know, didn't go to college and started a business on their own and, you know, really worked really hard to kind of like transform their lives. So they want to see their children make sort of sound decisions. And I think, you know, having me leave this, this steady job for to pursue an idea that had no stability and, you know, no one backing it at that time seems, I think, frightening to her. And for the first couple of years, um, she would refer to, <laughs> refer to it as my project. Um, I love and, that. It's not a job. It's like this little thing and, over there. And my lane, we had like 20 employees and I was like, mom, it really, it's, it's a company. Right. That's great. Um, you know, and at that point I'm 40 years old. Which is you know, hilarious. So you're always right. you're always your parents' children, right? And but I, I think actually sometimes um, that's been a motivating factor for me to like kind of prove prove to my mom like I can do this. Um, I I actually kind of like having a little doubt. Um, I have always found it inspiring because I think I have had a very um, strong kind of inner strength. And uh, it's funny. I, I kind of um, comes from my feminist feelings. You know, I certainly, I grew up in kind of a blue collar, uh, environment, I would say generally. And there was definitely, you know, a sense that women were inferior 
I mean, that was, that was the message that I was hearing all the time. And so, you know, when I was young, I played on the flag football team. I played on the boys, um, hardball team. I didn't want to play softball. And I feel like I was always kind of trying to prove that, uh, prove my worth and prove that I, I was going to surprise you. Yeah, I grew up in Pittsburgh. You grew up outside of Scranton. Yes. So two different parts of the state, but somewhat of the same, the same mentality of mm-hmm. growing up. And I'm 20 years older than you, give or take a couple of years. But, but I grew up with the same way in that women get married. This may not have been as strong for you, but women get married. You have kids, and you marry someone. You mm-hmm. don't take care of yourself. That's not what women do. And to this day, you know, I'm 62 years old. My mother will still sometimes, that's like you were talking about, your mom, my, my mom will be like, so, you know, it's like the guy who has to take care of you. Like when Lewis goes away on a trip. So Lewis isn't there. Are you sure you're locking the doors? No, mom. I just, I live in Manhattan and I leave them wide open. Okay. I don't lock them. I just leave them open because I think yeah. that's a fun thing to do. It's like, okay, yeah, I am locking my doors. But it's this mentality that we're just these helpless creatures. Yes. And my mom is very independent. So, you know, you look at it and say, where are we coming from? But in her mind, she's independent, but she was very dependent on my dad. So it's, yeah. it's really when you take those learnings and coming from those environments and those backgrounds, they do play into that. You can use them as your strength. And uh-huh. I think it's great. You're using it to your strength. I've used it to my strength and not, and, and, and it is that I'll show everyone and not in a negative way, but yeah. in a positive way, right? If yeah. I will show everyone that I can do this. Uh-huh. So if you had a failure that you I'm sure you had a few of being an entrepreneur. <laughs> you just she, she just looked at me with that look like, okay, where do you want me to start? Yeah. That is a story where you can give people hope that you can come out the other side. That yeah. You, you do well, I'm, I'm, I'm not a rose-colored glasses person by any means, but I definitely have always felt there are positives in hardship, and I kind of lump hardship and failure together. Um, when I left the Times, I actually left to start a different company. And it was not food related. It was uh, very much a kind of technology company. And I had two founders and we spent a year building a prototype and trying to get it launched and talking to investors. And we ended up launching a, um, a pared down version of what we wanted to do on Twitter, like a Twitter app, essentially. So, you know, I guess on one hand, you could look at that as there was some success in that. But the failure was that ultimately we realized there wasn't a business to build and we weren't the right team to build it. And I spent a a bunch of savings uh, that year, like by renting an office. And I was sort of like kind of funding the company, so to speak, and a lot of time and um, a lot of worry. And, but I learned a ton. And so sure, it was a failure in that it, it didn't become a company, but it formed like the foundation that we've built Food 52 on. Like, I, I call it my startup grad school. Like, I didn't go get an MBA. I spent, you know, a year working on a startup and you learn so much. And and actually, I'm quite grateful because we didn't raise money. So we didn't do, like, a lot of, quote, unquote, damage um, right. <laughs> in this world. But, but I built a network and I really found my place. I realized, oh, this is, this is the world I want to be in. The world of what well, I call it the world of yes, you know, where you can create whatever you want. I mean, it's up to you to make it happen. And um, while I was working on this other startup, I was um, I was working on this big book project and my now co-founder was helping me with it. And we spent tons of hours in the kitchen together talking and, you know, she kind of 
saw me go through this whole experience uh, while we were working on this book, and then um, and then we decided to start this company together. So to me, they were like, yeah, it was a tough year, um, but there were like lots of positives. You know, I think along the way with this company, Food Fifty Two, you know, we've been told no by so you know so many investors. Um, really, that's a, that's shocking because you're doing so well. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, <laughs> well, investors are you know, kind of like, uh, spouses, right. You can just, you just need one right, great one, right. you know? Um, but I, I, we have great investors, but, oh, I mean, so many no's along the way. And, um, those, those no's are stinging and I, it's hard not to take them personally. And I, and I kind of feel a little bit like I, I have that sort of young part of me where I'm like, we're going to prove you wrong. Right. Like you, you know, um, you, and need, you are, yeah. I mean, we are. And, but I've also feel like I've matured. Like I understand that not every company is the right fit for every investor. You know, it's, um, sort of comfort levels of risk and there's just areas of interest and, and, you know, frankly for us, it's not just about them saying yes, it's about us finding investors who really get us and who are going to add value. I, I, we haven't had any like big disasters, but we have, we've had a lot of like bumps in the road, you know, I think every, every, um, startup does. And I think for, especially for the first couple of years, because it was basically just us and a very small team, very bare bones. And so everything that goes wrong feels like that much more magnified. Um, whereas now when there are bumps, you feel like there's, there's a, uh, a team that can, um, kind of absorb, <laughs> absorb the blow and that we can figure it out. I think, too, part of it, at least for me, is getting older and realizing, putting things in perspective, right? Yeah. So, like, when you're in your 20s and you haven't had this experience, so you don't know you're coming out the other side, it seems so much more traumatic. Mm -hmm. But after you have these experiences and you realize, you're going back to boys, when you're younger and you have that first heartbreak, you think you're never going to get over it. And eventually you realize life does go on. And I think as we're building our businesses and you kind of realize, okay, that didn't go right, but it's okay. It's not the end of the world. We will go on. And it's that, those experiences that help guide us get to that next point. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to, I'm not even segue, we're just going to cut away to talking about our, what are we done with moments? So I'll start. Great. One of the things, because you can think of what you're done with. One of the things I'm done with, and I got done with this years ago, but I think it's really important because I just heard somebody do this the other day and I thought, ooh, that person really needs to be done with that. So I was, <laughs> I was on an airplane. No, it's not it. that. No, not you. <laughs> I was on an airplane. wasn't you. I was on an airplane and years and years ago, I was a junior lobbyist for the American Sugar Cane League, which is a hoot all into itself. I'm from Pittsburgh. It, how I even ended up in this job is one of those what moments in life. But I'm a junior lobbyist. And I'm at Russell Long. He was the senator, the senior senator from Louisiana in those days. And I'm at his apartment at the Watergate the day before. I'm 20-something, right? And we were talking about putting a bill through and blah, blah, blah. And the next day, I'm on an airplane. And we used to fly first class in those days. Wow. I know. It was the, those were the good old days. And I'm sitting on the plane. I'm talking to someone. And I said, you know, I was at Russell Long yesterday. And I was saying how wonderful he was. And... In front of me, the guy stands up, and it's Russell Long, and he says, I want to thank you for saying nice things about me. And I thought, what if I would have said something like, I was at Russell Long's home, oh my and gosh. he was a jerk. Oh my that gosh. could have just blown 
everything we were working on, right? So that was that lesson. Whenever I'm on an airplane now, if I can't say something nice about someone, I don't say, I don't use their names ever unless I'm saying something nice about someone. So I was on a plane a few weeks ago and that somebody was sitting there bad-mouthing someone and, and I thought, you just don't know who knows that person or if they're sitting next to you. So I'm done with doing that. I've been done with that for a long time, but I hope everybody else gets done with it too. I think about that a lot in New York restaurants because yes. you're always like jammed up right next to a table next to you. And I feel like New York is like a small town. You know, everyone ultimately kind of like has right. two degrees of separation. And so, yeah. Now I'm I use initials. Surprised. Yes. I use initials of people. It's like, so we'll just call her MP. Yeah. So what I'm done with, um, I, I feel like that, that list is uh, ever growing. But, you know, I once went and saw someone speaking about... American recipe writing style and how Americans uh, approach recipes versus, um, in this case, Europeans. And she was saying how Americans are so focused on the destination (laughs) um, and never on the journey. And I always loved that because I felt like it really resonated. And it resonated at the time that I heard this, which was probably about 10 years ago. It resonated with the way I led my life. I wasn't able to change it then, and I I think it's like a work in progress, but I feel like I, in the past couple of years, I've really have been done with just the destination, and you know, I think having kids has made a, had a huge impact because you realize how quick the journey progresses, and that it really is a journey, and that suddenly, I mean, your, your, your time suddenly becomes more valuable, like your time with your kids, and how it's spent, and and so, yeah, I, I, and I feel like I've been approaching everything I do with that in mind. Um, and it's been so great. I feel like I've been so much happier. It's, it's one of the best lessons in life I've ever learned is to enjoy the journey and don't worry so much about the destination yeah. because you never know what road you're going to end up going down that you never even imagined. And I've told this story many times about adopting my daughter. And I was so focused on the destination, meaning the adoption. And if I hadn't gone through the journey, everything, my life would have been so different. And it was that journey that got me to where I'm at. And yeah. it made me, it, it has made my life so wonderful. But mm-hmm. had I just been focused on the destination, that wouldn't have been the case. Yeah. Okay, so I could go on and on, Amanda, and we are going to continue on. But now joining us for takeaways is Aaron Zakis. Aaron is a millennial whose dream of being an astronomer, that dream was put on hold after watching the movie Slumdog Millionaire. But first, I want to thank Trucar for supporting Mentoring Moments. So part of being a mentor is sharing, like sharing recipes or where to find what you need. So here's a tip. If you need a new or a used car, check out Trucar, not just because they're supporting us, although that's really cool, but because they make buying a car really easy. And that includes used cars. So here's the headline. If I were writing this post, it would be the five things you need to know when buying a new or used car. The first one is True Car has over 500,000 pre-owned vehicles. That's a whole lot of cars to pick from. And they have this really cool pricing curve so you can see what others in your area pay for the same car. I just love that feature. And then you save money, which is always a good thing. The average user saves over $3,000 off of MSRP. And then they have this really easy-to-use website and app, but it's also about humans. The True Car Certified Dealer Network has over 11,000 dealers nationwide. 
So there's human beings that you can find, someone close to you who can actually talk to you, answer your questions, and help guide you through this car buying process. And to make it all official, you can get a guaranteed savings certificate from a True Car certified dealer. So when you're ready to buy a new or used car, visit TrueCar.com or download the True Car app to enjoy a better car buying experience. Some features are not available in all states. I'm Rosa Blasi. And I'm Lisa Ann Walter. We're a bit sex obsessed. Extremely chocoholic. Sometimes judgy and slightly insane. The Chick Show does your life. Period. Get it free at iTunes or Podcast One. It's time to break the cycle of waste and mess. Time to stop accepting that the way things have been done are the way they should be done. Control Alt Delete everything you thought you knew about how to period. We're flipping the script, we're throwing out the book. We're challenging the period status quo. The Diva Cup is eco-friendly, reusable, and offers up to 12 hours leak-free protection. So what are you waiting for? Join the inner revolution with the Diva Cup. The Diva Cup is used for menstrual flow only. Always read and follow the user guide. Mentoring Moments. Mentoring Moments. Takeaway. Now joining Amanda and me is Aaron Zakis, the founder of Sundara, an organization that recycles soap. And she's out to change one startling statistic. Over 2 million people die of preventable hygiene disease. And one of those causes for people, especially children, is that they don't have soap or they don't even know how to use soap or don't even, they never even heard of soap. So here's what Erin is doing in India and Uganda and Myanmar. She is recycling soap. So she gets soap that hotels would throw away. She hires women who are widows, victims of domestic violence, and single moms, and she employs them at a fair wage and trains them to become hygiene ambassadors. So here's what they've done to date, and these numbers are really impressive. They've distributed over 100,000 bars of soap. They've taught over 4,000 classes on hygiene, and they have protected over 10,000 children from life-threatening diseases. So, Aram, welcome so much to us, and Amanda's clapping for you. Oh, <laughs> like, thank so you. So we're very Wonderful. excited you're being here, and your work that you're doing thank is you. really great. And, you know, one of the things, and I want you to do the takeaways in a second. Sure. But one of the things that I think that I, I love when I don't purposefully put people together in this section, right? So I'm not looking for somebody else in the food business. Yeah. But I love when they find those underlying pieces that people share. And I think both of you are very about human beings, about making life better for humans, about cooking is an experience for Food 52, right? It's an experience that brings you together. Mm -hmm. What you're doing is saving lives and helping people. So I think that's a human thread that we have between the two of you and just human and well-being. So I just wanted to point that out. Now we want your takeaways. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much for having me, Denise and Amanda. It's just been a pleasure to hear your story and get to learn about all of your mentoring moments. Uh, It's just really a pleasure to be here today. So I wanted to, you said something that was really interesting, that you got so many no's along the way. And I think that's something that's true for all three of us, that you will constantly face rejection. My question for you both is, how do you become comfortable with the no's? (laughs) Um, I don't know if you want to become too comfortable. You know, I think that um, understanding that it's not personal, I think, is, is the toughest part. You know, I actually think that having been a journalist, 
you build up a thick skin when people like write in and complain and are like angry at you. And, you know, even in food writing, there's a lot of passion around people's responses to what you, what you write. And I do think that that helped me kind of develop a um, thicker skin and also a sense that, you know, you're not going to please everyone or not everyone is going to agree with you and that, that that's not necessarily a bad thing. And I think the same thing goes for like when you're building a business, not everyone is going to think it's the best idea or that you're the right people to do it you have to believe that. Right. And it's always a good test, right? So if, um, if you start believing the doubts that you're hearing, I don't think you should just, you know, across the board, reject, uh, any, any doubts either. I think you should listen to them, kind of categorize them and understand them and see if there's something in there for you to learn. But, um, really, use it as a motivation to keep going. You know, I think the tough part comes when you have, when you're getting a lot of no's kind of all at once. Yeah. But I always, th- I always remind myself and my, my co-founder Meryl and I talk about this a lot is that, you know, creating something on your own is such a huge privilege. Like most people in the world do not get to make decisions about, you know, their careers and how they're going to spend their time and, or to ever create anything new on their own. And so, you know, I think it's just, it's always helpful to have perspective. And I actually am like increasingly, you know, living in New York city, you're kind of surrounded by new things, exciting things, a lot of wealth, a lot of privilege. And, uh, you know, I didn't grow up around that. And I think it's, I'm grateful for that because I think I have perspective on, you know, where I am. And so when I get a no, you know, I feel like, you know, I'm lucky to be here getting a no, like to have the opportunity to get a no, um, when most people don't. Sure. Yeah. Thank you. And I, and I agree with you a hundred percent. And you just made me look at you maybe look at getting the nose differently. I believe in what you're saying. It just reminded me to think that way. But I was in sales all my life. So you're told no 90% oh of your life, <laughs> yes. right? right? And you just can't take it personally because they're saying no to your product. Sure. But when I became an entrepreneur, then people were saying no to my ideas. And something I almost did, and I'm really glad I didn't, There, we were talking about investors. There was a big-time investor who wanted to invest in my company, and the company at the time was a safe social networking site for young girls called Alley Cats. And we would do research. Our business model was doing research for, like, Nickelodeon and Disney. And the girls, it was great. The girls were 8 to 14, and we told their parents. So they felt empowered. It's like, well, this is great. These companies want to know what we hear, what, what we have to say. But this big investor wanted to turn it around to be a research company. And I so desperately wanted the money or needed the money because just as you were saying, Amanda, I invested my own money. I went on the same college degree program you did. I didn't get my grad. I got my undergrad. I went through four years of what it would cost to get. And my husband's the best. He always says to me the same thing that you were saying. That was your college education. Why can't you look at this like this is what got you to here? Um, But going back to the no's, one thing we learned in sales, and it sounds really like, oh, well, whatever, but it really helps me mentally, is it's no for today. Yeah. That no can change to tomorrow. So this guy who wanted me to change my company around to be this research company and I needed the money, I almost said yes. And that's what played in my head. It was like, no, don't go there. You're getting your no's and their no's for today. What if somebody came back to you tomorrow and said yes after you just kind of sold your soul to the devil? and mm-hmm. created everything you worked for. That's not what this company was meant to be. Mm-hmm. So I think that's my thing. It's, it's no for today. 
Yeah. And just keep that in mind. And there is somebody out there who will get it. They just aren't getting it right now. Sure, sure. I know in previous podcasts, you've talked about also a culture of scarcity versus a culture of abundance. And so I think that's something that I also have to remind myself when I'm getting constant no's is that there is someone out there who would believe in my idea, who believes in my mission, who wants to invest, who wants to donate. I just haven't met them yet. And mm-hmm. it's almost like a numbers game in terms of putting yourself out there, putting your idea out there so that enough people talk about it and the right people find their way to you. Mm-hmm. Something else that I wanted to talk about is something that I see a lot of my millennial peers struggling with, which is, as you were saying, working for a company that has a big name and an established name is very tempting because we're sort of trained to seek approval from outside sources. So to say I work for the New York Times or Goldman Sachs, it comes with this, wow, that's impressive. And you kind of go up a level in people's eyes. So it's that versus finding personal fulfillment. Um, So I wanted to hear what advice you would give to someone who's maybe working at uh, a company that has a lot of perks, that has big name benefits, but secretly wants to do something a bit more entrepreneurial or take a risk or, um, you know, leap to a different um, career path. What would you give them for advice having gone through, I mean, both of you essentially did that transition on your own and what would you share for them? Um, So I look back at those kind of days when I, you know, yeah, I worked for this very reputable company um, and I, I feel like it, it makes you kind of lazy in certain aspects. You know, I think that, you know, I got so used to everyone picking up the phone and people reading my stories and it was nice, but it also, I think, had a sort of negative effect on my sense of like what I could actually do and how I should be spending my time. And I think I felt like, um, I'm glad that I saw the light, you know, so to speak, um, and I, so I would recommend that um, that they think about yeah this narrative that you're you're writing about your life and do you want it to just have a brand stamped on it right or do you want it to have you know a really engaging tale that's about kind of you and what what you believe in sure I think tying back to the obituary story yeah. where you're saying do you want the New York Times in your obituary or do you want character traits and your own thing? Um, well, I think, I mean, like I'm proud of, I'm really, I'm happy to me. It was like a big accomplishment to come from where I came from to, to work at a place like that. Yeah. And that, and I'm, I, I don't regret that, but I think like having that entirely define who you are. Like I was thinking about this the other day, how, like I was thinking about how Harvard grads in some ways, like they suffer from like people who, um, are in their forties in their career, you'll hear, Oh, well he went, went to Harvard. And I'm like, who cares? Like, you know, you're 40, like you're still carrying that identity. You're like kind of, it dragged, it's dragged along with you. And sure there are many benefits, but are you really kind of creating your life for like kind of that reflects your actual talents and skills and contributions as opposed to this brand that you, you have that right. others value. Right. I also think though, some people work better in infrastructures Yes. Right. So yeah. if you think, and, yes. I, and I agree with everything you said in the end of it, I think if you're thinking about leaving a big company, some people just don't, they may think they want to be entrepreneurs, but they don't function without having that infrastructure yeah. around them. Mm-hmm. So that's something I always tell everyone. You know, you have to be willing to 
create, whether you want to call it a brand, whatever it is you're creating without the power of a big brand behind you. And so yeah. you're like saying about Harvard, right? People, you want those brands. You want those signs of approval that you wear. Yeah. And sometimes being an entrepreneur, you don't have that. You're like, well, yeah. I'm Denise with Alley Cats. That's a whole lot different than I'm Denise with the New York Times. Right? Sure. People are like, oh, that's great. Right. When I say that I write for Forbes, People are like, oh, that's so great. They don't even know what I write. It's like they don't care. It's like, oh, like, and when I say I did a book with Forbes, it's like, you did a book with Forbes. They have no idea what the book is. They're just so impressed that I did a book with Forbes. Mm -hmm. So I think everyone, you have to be at that point where you have to be able to say, I can go out and not be attached to a brand yeah. and make it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that brings me to my next point that I wanted to talk about. Um, we mentioned how with age comes perspective. But from a millennial's point of view, when we don't have that age, and maybe some of us haven't had children to put our lives into perspective, in this society, it feels as though sometimes we're so self-absorbed. And I'm constantly reminding myself, Erin, it's not all about you. It's not all about Sundara. You need to get out of that mental state because we can kind of just get tied up. Uh, so for me, it's been very helpful. I have a dog. And so literally three to four times a day, I'm actually picking up someone else's crap. And <laughs> it, it forces me to get out of my self-absorbed mind state. But what would you recommend to millennials who don't have children, maybe can't have dogs, but to get out of this self-absorbed state of mind and realize that the world is bigger than you, your problems, your issues, your company, your nonprofit, whatever it is? Try something that makes you uncomfortable. Right. I mean, I think you have to push yourself, right? It's easy to get kind of coddled and to sort of seek, to gravitate towards things that you know will be comfortable or easier. Or, um, you know, I, I'm really glad that I like pushed myself to go to Europe after college and cook and have to figure things out. And it wasn't easy, um, but I grew a lot. And I, I think that it taught me that I can do that kind of thing. And so I don't know. I think that it's it takes a lot of uh, kind of determination sometimes to break yourself out of like a more comfortable arena. I, yeah. I always find, I, you mentioned this earlier, that you feel glad to be able to leave New York and travel and it kind of it gives you some perspective and fresh air. And I, I've always felt that way, traveling and kind of reminding yourself that there's a huge world out there and we're just a part of it and that people – think differently and live differently. I, I always find that really inspiring and kind of refreshing. Mm -hmm. And I also think there's, so Kat Cole, who is, who is the president of Focus Brands, which is Auntie Anne's and Cinnabon, she has a great story to tell when she was working at Hooters. She had, everybody loved her. Her you know, staff loved her, everybody, but there was this one guy who was senior to her and he was causing her all sorts of problems. He was making up stories about her and she was said she would go home not every night, but a lot of nights crying in tears. And she just couldn't handle it. And so what she did, though, she started to volunteer. And what that did is it not only gave her something else outside of thinking the old term of all of my eggs in one basket. She now had a different basket. But she also met people. So she had that freedom of mind that if this job doesn't work, that's okay. I have a whole other network of people here that have seen me perform, that know how I work, that will also be connectors to me for my next job. Mm -hmm. So it was taking it from that scarcity point of, I need this job. I've worked so hard to be in this job to that, you know what? 
there's nothing I can do about it. And what she she calls it her emotional bank account. That <laughs> she she found that these were that's a great term, right? That mm -hmm. these were deposits into her emotional bank account working for the nonprofit. And it doesn't have to be a nonprofit, it could be anything you're doing. But it just takes you out of that day. So when this guy wanted to deplete her emotional bank account, she was like, That's okay, because I've got deposits in there. So you can take them and they're not going to devastate me. Yeah, yeah. Yes, so, and ladies so, I go ahead. Oh, no, I was just saying, you know, one you're speaking specifically of your, your generation and I think that, you know, one of the things that has been written a lot about with millennials in general is that they're very risk averse. And the thing about life is like you're not going to become less risk averse over time. And so it's just it's kind of like a good thing to know. I mean, every generation has its characteristics. And if that's the one if that's a, one that is um, that resonates, I think that, you know, it's kind of on you to to fight against that if you feel like that's important. To and do think, something different and break out, yeah. Yeah, it really, and to get those demons out of your head. My uncle used to always say this to me, what's the worst that will happen yeah. if you take that risk? And you think about it, with most things in life, what is the worst that will happen? And the worst is really not that bad. So I could spend the next decade with you two ladies, with you, Amanda and Aaron, but you won't be a millennial any longer, Aaron. so we're <laughs> going to wrap up for today. But I want to continue this conversation. So, Amanda, we'll start with you. Where can people find you? Great. Well, I'm on Twitter, at Amanda Hesser, and also on Instagram, and, and I'm on Food52 every day. So it's food52.com. Hope you'll come visit. You have to come visit. You really have to go visit. Okay. And my website is Sundara Fund, S-U-N-D-A-R-A Fund, F-U-N-D dot org. But also, I'd love to have people reach out to me over email. So that's just Erin, E-R-I-N, my name, at sundarafund.org. And you have to visit Erin as well. They're two wonderful women doing wonderful things. Thank you both so much. Thank you. Thank you. So huge thanks for joining us today. And to get Mentoring Moments, the moment it's available, which is every Wednesday, please subscribe on iTunes. And while you're there, if you could just rate and review, that would be great. And check out my show notes on Forbes.com. You know, I'd love to know what you think when we were talking about permission. Are you still asking for permission? Even when you know that what you want to do, are you still seeking approval? How do you handle it when someone tells you no? Do you walk away and think it's okay? Or do you really internalize it and does it ruin your day? And have you found Mr. Right? Even if Mr. Right isn't a person, Mr. Right can be a job. Have you found your Mr. Right? So tell me, I really want to hear what's going on in your life. You can find me on Twitter at Denise Rastari. Until next week, keep sharing your stories because your stories matter. Download new episodes of Mentoring Moments every Wednesday at podcastone.com, forbes.com, the Podcast One app, or you can subscribe at iTunes. Technology Truths, brought to you by GEICO. Technology Truths. Truth, you think you can solve any problem by turning your computer off and on. Hey man, is something wrong with your laptop? Nah, I just need to turn it off and on. It's no problem. It's smoking. Yeah, that just means it needs to reboot. Truth, it's so easy to switch and save on car insurance at GEICO.com. And now it's on fire. Happens all the time. It's all good. GEICO, 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. I'm Rita Foley with an AP News Minute. London police have arrested Julian Assange on extradition charges to the United States, as well as for violating his bail. Assange is accused of publishing classified documents through WikiLeaks. 
In 2010, he told Sky News he was worried about what the U.S. might do to him. The United States recently has shown that its institutions seem to be failing. Uh, they are failing to follow the rule of law. And with dealing with a superpower that does not appear to be following, following the rule of law is a serious business. He also said in 2010 the U.S. officials had threatened him and those associated with him. There has been many calls by senior political figures uh, in the United States, uh, including elected ones in the Senate, uh, for my execution, uh, the kidnapping of my staff. Edward Snowden, the former security contractor who leaked classified information about U.S. surveillance programs, says the arrest of Assange is a blow to media freedom. I'm Rita Foley.